Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 11. We're going to take the whole chapter, which has been a shorter reading for us over the past couple weeks. So if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 11 verses 1 through 10. Follow along and listen to God's word. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after this, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Control is a drug, and we are all hooked. So says Kate Bowler, a um, historian at Duke Divinity School. In 2013, Bowler, uh, or Bowler, uh, published a scholarly history of the prosperity gospel, and the book was titled, Blessed. And two years later, at the age of 35, she was unexpectedly diagnosed with stage four cancer. In a memoir afterwards, she reflected on the irony of being an expert in health and wealth and prosperity while she herself contracted incurable cancer. In her book that followed, Everything Happens for a Reason and Lies I've Loved and Other Lies I've Loved, she writes, control is a drug and we are all hooked. Whether or not we believe in the prosperity gospel's assurance that we can master the future with our words and attitudes. Bowler, writing in the face of her grim diagnosis, adds, do I have any control? Desire for control seems innate to the fallen human heart. We try to control our health. We want to control our finances. 
We want to control the jobs that we get, our career trajectory. We want to control our children. And some of us are partly ashamed uh, and partly to justify ourselves. We'll say that we are control freaks. Yet one simply needs to keep living just a little bit longer to discover again and again that you aren't in control of your life in any meaningful sense. Uh, You might be exceeding expectations at work, uh, but you will still lose your job, perhaps. You might get great scores and go to the right schools, and, but you won't get into that one school that you really want to get into. <clears throat> and the greatest affront to our desire for control is death. And death is the ultimate undoing of our control. The ultimate undoing of our cherished illusion of control. This morning, we continue in our series in Exodus, and we have before us chapter 11, a chapter that is about death and about control. It is in this passage announcing the death of the firstborn in Egypt that we see ultimately that God is the one who is in control and that God is sovereign. If you've been with us over the past several weeks, throughout these plagues, we've seen that all of it has been about a contest of control. Who controls the elements? Who controls livestock and insects? Who controls the people of Israel? And we see in this culminating announcement in chapter 11, a long process controlled by God and brought to the fruition exactly as he had planned. We see God's all-encompassing sovereignty and his splendor. We see that God is sovereign over the future. We see that God is sovereign over his enemies. And we see that God is sovereign over hearts. That's kind of my outline this morning. That is my outline this morning, those three points. First, we see in our passage that God is sovereign over the future. God is sovereign over the future. Chapter 11 essentially picks up right after the plague of darkness. Moses is still in the presence of Pharaoh, with Pharaoh bellowing out, get out from me. That's what we saw last time in chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10. If I see your face again, I'm going to kill you. That's what Pharaoh says. And verses 1 through 3 basically serve as a parenthesis to explain the context of what Moses will announce. The death of the firstborn, the final plague. Verses 4 through 8, I believe, is simply a continuation of the uh, the conversation that was happening earlier. It's as if Moses says, all right, you don't want to see me? I'm leaving. Oh, and by the way, one more thing, Pharaoh. Before I go, let me tell you about one last plague. But notice in this chapter, in chapter 11, the language of wills and shalls. Look at verse 1. Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh. Afterward, he will let you go, and he will drive you away completely. Verse 4. About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. Verse 5. 
Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Verse 6, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land. Verse 8, verse 8, your servants shall come down to me. And verse 9, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied. These are the wills and the shalls as God declares what is going to happen. But notice that this is a God who not only predicts the future, he plans and purposes the future. God himself says in verse 1 what? I will bring upon Pharaoh. This is not some sort of naturalistic process that's going to happen throughout the land of Egypt. This is the Lord's activity. Verse 4, God is speaking. He says, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land shall die. God announces that he will personally move throughout Egypt to bring about the death of the firstborn. God has caused all the plagues thus far through secondary means, right? Insects, soot, hail, frogs. But now God himself is the performer of this last plague. He is the active agent. And notice also the specificity of what Moses says. It's not some vague prediction of the future. Uh, today, some people do that. They might fancy themselves a, a Christian prophet or, you know, some type of fortune teller or something, and they give some vague foretelling, right? In this year, you will find love or something like that. Or in this year, you will find difficulty, you know, it's something drastic will happen to you. And you're like, well, gee, thanks. I've lived long enough to know that, yes, something like that will happen in this year. Or sometimes it's the worst. The worst is when it's like a prediction wrapped up in spiritual jargon, right? One bad chapter doesn't mean your story is over, you know, or something like that. But notice the specificity. It isn't someday God will bring judgment on Egypt. He says, when? Midnight. Around midnight. That means the deepest, darkest part of the night. What's going to happen? The death of the firstborn. Where? Everywhere. To every family, even animals. Result? Great cry throughout the land. People will bow down and Israel thrust out of Egypt with gold and silver in their pockets. This is a specific prediction of what the Lord will do. He says to Moses, I'm going to tell you when it will happen, what will happen, and how it will happen. But I'm the one that's going to make it all happen. Such is my power. Commentator Douglas Stewart writes, Moses was writing this story not merely to help his fellow Israelites trust Yahweh as things happened, but to help them learn to trust that Yahweh is the one who makes things happen. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? It's not simply, oh, you know, you can trust God as things are happening to you. God will respond. God is there. God will act in the midst of your difficulty and trial. Don't worry. It's not just that. But learning that God is the one who is making all of these things happen. He is not simply responding and cleaning up our messes. He is sovereign over the future. He does exactly what he says he will do. He announces his plans and fulfills them, makes his will known and performs them. He forgets nothing of what he forecasts, whether that is a promise 
or it's a threat. All happens according to his stated intention. Psalm 33, 9, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood, form, it stood firm. Lamentations three thirty seven. who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Even if you should want to use the language of, oh, God is permitting things to happen, I would say God is permitting these things by design. He is over all. He is the one who ultimately brings all things to pass. And beloved, this is good news because when we are knocked off our feet by an unexpected trial, when we... When things happen to us that, we, that were completely unexpected, we can turn to this truth and remind ourselves that nothing happens outside of God's sovereign control. In uncertainty and chaos, when we're striving for control, when we want more control, we can remind ourselves God is not surprised by this. He is not asleep at midnight while we were all caught off guard on Thursday morning, God knew. God wasn't caught off guard when Russia invaded Ukraine. Because God ordains and orchestrates all things, even wars. And because God is our good, loving, and faithful Father, we can rest in his holy purposes. This comforts us when we worry about what is happening in the world today. This gives us hope in, the day, in our day-to-day choices, the choices that, even, that we have to make in our lives. We can get so caught up in complex decisions like, do we move or do we stay or do we buy a house now or do we buy it later? Do I get this job A or do I get this job B? Do I, do I send my kid to homeschool or private school or public school? Which is gonna, and, and we think that the weight of these choices are irrevocable, that, that it's, you know, if I put them here, this is going to be their life for the rest of, you know, this is, what, this is going to happen for the rest of their lives. It will irreversibly mark out the future. And the truth is, we cannot interfere. It's impossible to interfere with God's plans for us and for this world. Because God is sovereign over the future. Second, God is sovereign over his enemies. That's our second point. He is not only sovereign over the future, he is sovereign over his enemies. In this tenfold victory of God, there are many enemies that God kind of overcomes, defeats. There are the gods of Egypt, there's Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And when it comes to the gods of Egypt, this is probably the ultimate one. He's kind of gone through the pantheon of gods so far, whether it is the god of the Nile or the frog goddess or, 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 the, or the sun god Ra. He's kind of defeated all of them through those plagues. And now he is saying, probably in this one, that he defeats Osiris. Osiris, the god of the dead and his assistant, that you might be more familiar with, Anubis, who is the god of the underworld. He's typically kind of seen as the one with uh, the dog head and the, and the human body. And here we see they're utterly powerless. But not only is God sovereign over other so-called gods, he is sovereign over Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God will mete out his punishment for Egypt with the death of the firstborn. Now, some question the character of God in killing the firstborn of the families over all of Egypt. 
Some people say, isn't it really just mainly Pharaoh? Like, why doesn't God just snuff out Pharaoh instead? Right? But if you think about it, the punishment fits the crime. Son for son, child for child. If you turn back to Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23, it says this. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So back in chapter 11, we understand that it's not like there hasn't been a warning Israel is my son, God says. You've enslaved him for 400 years. Not only you, but others who are complicit in it. And this is a graphic rebuke. You withhold my son Israel from me, and I will withhold your son from you. This is not even to mention that in Exodus 1, Pharaoh seeks deliberately to kill all the sons of the Israelites and enlists all of Egypt to perform genocide. God says, I will bring justice. I am omniscient, omnipotent, all-knowing. I will not be mocked. But God's justice goes deeper. The reality is that everyone in Egypt deserved to die, even the Israelites. Israel, you'll notice, isn't exempt from this judgment, or maybe you'll see in the next couple of weeks we'll see that. Israel isn't exempt from this judgment. You see, everyone is a sinner by nature, and death has always been the wages of sin. Every last one of the Egyptians and Israelites and us have sinned in Adam and inherited from him a sinful nature. All of us have compounded that guilt by sins of our own. God has every right to bring judgment upon any and all who rebel against him. That he does not act immediately against all does not mean that he does not have the intrinsic and sovereign right to do so. Because of mankind's fall into sin, we are rebels with no rights before God. He may judge sinners at any moment and with any means he deems appropriate. And when God visits them, verse 6 tells us, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. This shows with painful, graphic forcefulness that the life of all humans, including children, are in the hands of God and to be dealt with according to his wisdom. You know, last night we were going through this passage with my family. We kind of preview it on Saturday nights before Sunday. And in our kind of sanctified imaginations... I think all of us kind of breathed a sigh of relief, except for one individual. But basically all of us said, glad we're not the firstborn in our family. (laughs) But when we thought about it a little bit more, we said, this would have meant the death of someone in our family. My grandparents, my aunt, their aunt, their uncle, their cousins, their friends. 
This affects every single family throughout all the land. Not a household didn't have some reason to weep and wail. And this was just a warning. It hadn't even come yet. Just as God warned the Egyptians and they did not listen, so God now warns us, I am sovereign over my enemies. The final issue for stubborn, unrepentant, recalcitrant humanity is that you will come face to face with God. Divine patience and forbearance waits. Every avenue will be offered, tried, exhausted, but the word of God cannot be refused endlessly. Those who will not bow to his word must bend to his judgment. But notice, God's sovereignty over his enemies is expressed in another way. You notice how some of the Egyptians seem to be getting it and Pharaoh doesn't? I mean, earlier with the plagues, with the plague of the gnats, Pharaoh's trusted associates, these magicians, are starting to recognize, whoa, this God is something else. Later in the plague of hail, some Egyptians, they actually fear God and they're bringing in their their livestock and their, 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 their field laborers into their homes because they wanted to listen to the word of God. In the plague of locusts, even Pharaoh's servants are like, come on, Pharaoh, just let them go. And here in verse 3, we see Lord, the, that the Lord gave Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians. They're beginning to consider Moses, what, great in the land of Egypt. In fact, there's such favor that the Egyptians will freely give to these departing Israelites, saying, what do you want? Just go. Just go. I'll, I'll give you whatever you want. Gold, silver, jewelry, I'll give it to you. Get them out of here. They freely give to those departing. And in verse 8, and all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me. There is this growing respect, a softening that is happening to the spirit of these Egyptians because God is at work of turning enemies into friends. And when Israel does finally leave Egypt, Exodus 12.38 says this, a mixed multitude also went up with them. It's not just the Israelites. It's unclear if this is a full-scale conversion, but there's a softening here. Pharaoh's heart is getting harder and harder, and some people are saying, who is this God? And some people are saying, I need to listen. And some will even say, I need to worship this God. Notice God's sovereign power extends even to the mouths of the dogs. There will be no yapping as they leave. And the question for all of us this morning is, will you and I be safe on the day of judgment? On the day when God settles accounts over his enemies? Because you better be sure that the sovereign Lord is on your side. If you're not a Christian, you might be saying, but I'm not an enemy of God. I'm here on Sunday. I'm tuning in on live stream, whatever it is. I'm at church. But there is no neutrality against, with, when it comes to God. Either you are for him or you are against him. Either you are in Adam or you are in Christ. Either you are a son of disobedience or a child of God. And until you belong to Christ, until Christ calls you friend, you remain God's enemy. But this is the love of God. That he sent his son, his one and only son, to be nailed to a cross. 
And when he was on that day, there was a loud cry, never to be heard again. And it came from Jesus as he bore sin and judgment of all those who would ever trust in him. So if you're not a Christian, I plead with you to repent and to turn to God, to listen to him, to trust in the death of God's son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again so that one day you can stand before the judgment seat of God. And you know what you'll hear? Nothing. No one will be able to accuse you of anything or any wrongdoing. Not even a dog will bark because all your sins will be paid for. No accusations left. And the sovereign God of the universe is on your side. Which brings us to our third and final point this morning. Third and final point. We've seen God is sovereign over the future. God is sovereign over his enemies. Third and finally, God is sovereign over the heart. And God is sovereign over the heart. Uh, Previewing these plagues a couple weeks ago, my children, you know, one of my one of my children, he's, he said to me, Papa, how come it sometimes says that Pharaoh hardens his heart and sometimes it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart? And I imagine that some of you have had the same question. Just who is doing the hardening? Is it God or is it Pharaoh? Is it kind of somehow both or something? And this brings us into questions about God's sovereignty and our free will. Now, 19 times in Exodus, it refers to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart so that he does not let the people go. It's described as God doing the hardening 10 times. Pharaoh self-hardens three times. And six times, the hardening uses a passive verb that does not specify who is doing the hardening. Now, what are we to make of all of this? Perhaps one of the most important details to observe in all of this is that before Moses even arrives in Egypt to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, God's plan was to harden Pharaoh's heart. Did you know that back in chapter 4, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses all the way back there, I will harden his heart. He's already designed it. This is why at the end of nearly every plague, even in the plagues where Pharaoh is said to harden his own heart, it includes this phrase, as the Lord had said, or as the Lord had spoken. In other words, the point is that God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart was not a mere response to Pharaoh's self-hardening. It was the plan from the beginning. What Pharaoh does, his self-hardening is described as the effect of what God does. So let me be clear as to what I'm saying. God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is straight from Romans 9.18, where Paul is looking back on this story about Pharaoh, and he comments, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, God is free, free, absolutely free. He is sovereign. God is not constrained by anything outside himself. 
Nothing in man, good or bad, past or present or foreseen, determines who is hardened and who is shown mercy. Of course, the objection is, well, what about my free will? You know, am I just a robot? Am I just a puppet on strings? Is that who I am? How can God hold me responsible for anything if, if he's the one who's controlling all things? Well, the answer is mystery. I know that seems like a cop-out answer, but that is what's true from scriptures. Things don't always fit into the neat boxes we would like them to when it comes to the things of God. People are hardened against God, but that doesn't nullify that they are really guilty. It doesn't nullify that they have real fault. It doesn't nullify that they are really blameworthy. They will deserve their punishment. The Bible says so over and over again that we are responsible. Our choices are our choices. They are true choices. We have a will. Our will is active. We are genuine moral agents. Look, Pharaoh isn't humbly beseeching God saying, I really want to obey you. And God just says, no, you don't. No, you don't. Pharaoh, why are you punching yourself? Why are you punching yourself? That's not what's happening. The heart, the heart hardened by Pharaoh and God is nevertheless Pharaoh's own heart, which is yielding forth a wicked stubbornness. I simply reject the notion that election and predestination and the sovereignty of God over hearts turn you into a robot or a puppet. That's just wrong. The Bible treats you as responsible. Do this or do that. If you do this, you please God. If you don't, you, you quench the spirit. You grieve the spirit. So you count. Your moral being counts. Big time, right? But this is a mystery. It's the same mystery as how the first sin entered the universe. How does sinful disposition arise in a good heart? The Bible doesn't tell us. To call that mystery free will, ultimate human self-determination, is only to put another name on it. Why would a perfectly good, ultimately self-determining creature, if there was ever such a thing as an ultimately self-determining creature, ever do evil? Ultimate human self-determination no more explains the mystery of the origin of evil than unconditional election explains the guilt of, all, of the hardened sinner. All it does is give the mystery a different name. So the real question is, what is the biblical name? Is it ultimate human self-determination or unconditional election. And Romans 9, 18 is clear. God has mercy on whomever he wills and has mercy and he hardens whomever he wills. So we must defer to God's word and hold these things in tension because the mystery remains, but the revelation is clear. So what is Exodus trying to tell us? Why does it tell us 10 times that God hardens Pharaoh's heart? Because the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was not about Pharaoh, but about God. You see, the plagues were never meant to win the day in the heart of Pharaoh. God did not send them to see if they would work on Pharaoh's heart. He didn't send one plague and say, oh, that one didn't work, so I'll send another one. Oh, that one didn't work, so I'll send another one. God did not fail when he sent the plagues. These plagues were not designed to convince Pharaoh. If God wanted, he could have gotten Israel out with one plague or no plague. 
No, these plagues served another purpose. And look at that in verse 9. What is that purpose? That my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt and to all the world. These plagues serve to display God's glory, his sovereign splendor. We are meant to stare in the face of God's sweet, stunning, and shocking sovereignty and see the world as it really is. It is meant that we and our children might look up and see that God is God, we are not. And it is only when you come to that realization that we find real freedom and real joy. It frees us to pray, knowing that God can overcome the most stubborn hearts of our children or our family or our friends. It means living a life of sacrificial love and fearless witness in this war-torn world because God is sovereign. And it means confident planning because luck, chance, fate, that's nothing. Thank God it's nothing. Our God, the God of the Bible, is the true and living God, sovereign over the future, over his enemies, over the human heart, so that all things work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. May we give him all the praise and glory. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these past couple of weeks where we, are, we have the opportunity to study your word, to hear from your word, and to learn from it. We pray that it would not simply be an intellectual gymnastics for us, but that it would have been a time in which our hearts are bowed low before you. Because you are glorious and marvelous, omniscient, omnipotent, and God only wise. Father, may we trust you more, trust you for the road ahead, trust you in whatever circumstances that you will bring into our lives. because you are sovereign. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.